0: there's this idea that the church of what the church is supposed to be, that the church is supposed to be a place of healing and the church is supposed to be good and the church is supposed to be loving. And when someone experiences the exact opposite of that, it really can mess with your mind of going, is it me or is it something else? Or what is love or who is God?
1: Hello, everyone. This is What Your Pastor did Tell You. Today, we're going to be talking about the topic of religious trauma in church and divorces and religious abuse. Uh, we're talking with Dr. Paula Swindle, who's done a lot of work in this area. How are you doing today, Dr. Swindle?
0: I'm good. I'm so excited to be here and chat with you a little bit.
1: Awesome. Yes, me me as well. So, yeah. Uh, what is your background on the topic?
0: So, I'll try to give you the convinced, condensed version of that, but as I as I thought about kind of like what you and what your listeners might want to hear about my background, you know, my, my personal experiences with faith and my professional experience are kind of woven all together. So from a professional background, um, initially, a long time ago in my undergrad, I thought I was going to be an English teacher, majored in... Um, English literature and did not go that route, wound up getting a master's degree in um, clinical mental health counseling and worked for a long time in the clinical mental health field, did some private practice, worked in an agency, did a lot of my um, counseling work in a hospital, hospital based counseling practices, both inpatient psychiatry and um, crisis assessment, also provided counseling in some medical settings like Um, cardiac rehab and the cancer center and then really kind of wanted to pivot to teaching um, to teaching and training future counselors and so um, at least where I am in the state of North Carolina and in most parts of the U.S. you you don't need a PhD to operate as a counselor to see clients as a counselor but a PhD you do need a PhD to teach in a counseling program and if people really want to do research so kind of late in life I went back to get my PhD in counseling and counselor education and pivoted to a faculty position. So I'm now an associate professor of counseling at a small um, university in North Carolina called Lenore Ryan University. So, um, and I maintain a small private practice on the side. So that's kind of the overview. I don't know how much you want me to get into the religious trauma piece of that just yet, Zach. Do you want me to talk about my interest there or?
1: Yeah. Um, so, I mean you could maybe this will tie in with your your research of religious trauma um but i was just hoping you could go give a summary of that so maybe how much that ties in or what you find is relevant up to you
0: yeah i so to shift a little bit from a personal perspective um well still more from an academic perspective my main area of expertise in my private practice is helping clients who've experienced religious trauma. I own, um, my private practice is actually called the Center for Healing Religious Harm, where I see um, individual clients, I provide consultation services to churches and groups and that kind of thing to be sure that they're um, equipped to be healthy systems for people and are not setting themselves up to be possibly abusive systems, things like that. And a lot of people wonder why I chose that particular area of interest as far as my academic research goes and my area of clinical interest. And that's a lot of people get into niches in, in the counseling world because of their own experience. And I'm not someone who feels like I've experienced religious trauma or religious abuse. I've actually had really wonderful experiences in all the religious systems I've been a part of. I do um, identify as a Christian. That is the foundation of my life. And I've had mostly really positive experiences. And one of the things that I've realized in my counseling work and and i named all those different settings because in all those different settings i encounter people from all walks of life having a lot of different religious experiences but i heard experiences of harm from religious systems over and over and over again um, and as a counselor you're supposed to remain as neutral as possible but I noticed personally when I would hear those experiences from my clients I would feel the need to I I would want to I wouldn't do it but I would want to defend God I would want to say something like not all churches are that way not all Christians are that way And and I'm primarily speaking on abuse in the Christian Church because that's been my experience I live in North Carolina in the Bible Belt. It's, <laughs> that's where a lot, not right. everyone for sure, but that's most of the experiences I hear. And all, all trauma, religious trauma can happen in any religion, but I know we're kind of speaking specifically about Christianity today. So, so being a reflective counselor, which is what we're supposed to do as counselors. We're supposed to kind of notice the stuff that comes up for us. And so I would notice those things and but that's not my role as a counselor, to defend God or to speak up about those things. So um so when I returned to school to get my PhD and pivot to teaching, you have to write a dissertation, which is basically doing a research study and then spending many years on one topic, and they say to do it on something you're really passionate about. And I had Found that this was something I was really passionate about personally, um, as well as professionally. Really wanting to help counselors be equipped to treat religious trauma in the counseling world. So, so that's a little bit about how I got into the research, and my professional life has continued on that. I, I co-host a podcast um, called Sacred Intersections with my pastor where I talk about the mental health piece and she talks about the theological piece and um, just wrote a book for counselors on um, treating survivors of um, religious abuse. So, so that's become the pathway of what I've really wanted to focus on in my professional work. Um, as for what I've learned, from and i want to be sure i come back to your question zach what what was there any particular piece you wanted me to talk about or just speak more generally
1: uh just a general overview of like you know your research and okay. then yeah um specifically tell to entail to like what you pe- think people would find value in
0: yeah so when i started researching this um there really wasn't a lot out there to for counselors especially but just in general about Harm in religious systems, and you'll hear me use a lot of different terms interchangeably. Some people will say religious trauma. Some people will say religious abuse. Some people will say spiritual trauma or abuse. Some people will say religious harm. I'm I'm kind of using them all interchangeably, but um, but there probably is some nuance of difference in that. But you know what I found, and it just started trying to define some of these terms, define some of these experiences. And so overall, when we talk about religious abuse, religious trauma, what we found is that it it can generally come from three different places. So the first is it can come from a religious leader. So someone in a designated religious position, so usually a pastor, but it could also be a deacon or an elder or someone that's um, or a Sunday school teacher or youth pastor, those kind of things. It can come from the group or from the system overall, Um, so more of a systemic kind of um, abuse or trauma that is the perpetrator of that, or it can come from the theology itself. It can come, so so I kind of think of it, the the religious abuser being either a religious leader, a religious system, or religious theology. So to give some examples of that, um, you know, from a religious leader would be the one that I think a lot of people think of when they hear the term religious trauma or religious abuse, which is um, a a pastor who engages in sexual abuse with um, a minor in their church and certainly that falls into the category of religious trauma and religious abuse that is, I consider religious trauma a much broader definition than that, but I think that's what a lot of people think of when they first hear that. Um, and then a more systemic kind of thing would be the othering of a particular group of people um, or the exclusion of a particular group of people. So it might be a church that engages in systemic racism or is intentionally, um, excluding of the LGBTQIA plus community those kind of things and from a systemic standpoint and then the theology piece can be when the theology itself is used to justify abuse so it might be an abusive husband who um, says who uses theology to justify abusing his wife physically or parents who engage in child abuse with their children and say they're doing it because God tells them to do it, those kind of things. Um, But instances of abuse can fall into more than one category. It can fall into multiple categories. It can actually fall into all three or just two or just one of those. So those are kind of the three main over categories. And then my research has identified several common experiences that people who've experienced religious trauma might have. Um, one being a lot of the clients that I work with and a lot of the people who participated in my study talked about feeling um, feelings of betrayal. Um, so strong, and that can come from a lot of places. They talk about being betrayed by the church, by their friends in the church that they thought were their church family. They might be betrayed by God. Um, they might feel that God has betrayed them. They might feel like they've been betrayed by their own beliefs. They might feel betrayed by their family if their family chooses um, a religious system over a relationship with them. So those were some common experiences. A lot of dynamics of power and control are at play in religious trauma and religious abuse. Um, a lot of systems that are high control systems and that are very hierarchical um, are tend to be Places that are more breeding grounds for abusive systems than systems that allow questions. The systems that you know can are not threatened by questions, are not threatened by things like thoughts of deconstruction and you know asking questions about why we've always done things a certain way. Those kind of things. Um, so systems that tend to allow people to talk about things, of course are gonna be less likely to hide things. And abuse, abuse lives in the dark. Abuse needs a, a system that will allow it to be hidden. Um, so so that's, and abuse of any kind always has power dynamics at play. But when you say, God is on my side, or God told me to do this, or God told me to tell you that, there's if you believe in God, there's so much power in that. And so, um, so understanding how the sacred, my dissertation, I actually called the twisting of the sacred, um, to notice how the sacred can just get really twisted. Um, so those are some themes I, I could talk a long time, but I'll, I'll let, I'll jump in, I'll stop and see exactly what you want to hear. But the other thing that was a common theme was this idea of rules being more important than people, um, that, that a rule that a church had or a rule around a certain interpretation of scripture being more important than an actual person, which if I just jump out of my counselor role and researcher role and into my, you know, my identity as a Christian is Mm -hmm. so much the opposite of how I understand Jesus. And, you know, that Jesus was all about um, relationships and, you know, the rule said, don't heal on the Sabbath. And Jesus is like, this is a person. So I'm (laughs) going to, you know, engage with this relationship. So how a lot of people might experience religious trauma are things like a woman who's told that the rule that she stays married is more important than her safety within an abusive marriage, you know, um, or that her husband is the better Christian because he wants to stay married, even though um, she feels like if she stays married, she might lose her life, those kind of things. So, So this idea of being, devalued and dehumanized in that um, the individual doesn't matter because the rule is what actually matters is another theme that I saw. So I could talk a long time, but let me just stop and see anything coming up for you that you want to hear more about or,
1: you know, I appreciate you summarizing that. Um, That's very helpful. Uh, We're going to have to come back to a lot of that. Uh, So (laughs) sure. um, Yeah. So like, what would you say are like, I mean, you know, you have, in your research you have like what your clients have said and um you know you've got like you know a lot of this research is just like the groundwork as far as like religious trauma and all that because there's just nothing out there but right. um what would you say as like as as from a i guess practical practical standpoint a counseling perspective like what would you say are the outcomes of like you've learned of that like you said oh wow like i never thought of it like that
0: You know, as far as what I think is important for clients to hear is um, I think some of the stuff that has been healing has there's a few different things. But first of all, that this was harmful to for someone to have their story heard and to have their to have what happens so often when abuse happens within a religious Mm -hmm. system is the voice gets silenced or the voice mm. can get buried. And so for someone to have it validated to them that this should mm. not have happened, um, you know, is can be really, really powerful. And that sounds really obvious, you know, to those <laughs> of us who who maybe haven't experienced it. But what happens in an abusive situation is someone mm. often they're their self-worth is continually undermined, their trust in themselves, and their ability to trust their own feelings about um, themselves and right and wrong, and what should be happening is just eroded away so often. Mm. So it can be really healing for someone to say, like, "The, the church should not have treated you that way, or that was abusive, or that sounds like that was traumatic. Some of the participants in my study, my initial study for my dissertation, Um, which is several years ago now, but talked about having a counselor who named it as trauma being so healing for them because no one had named it as trauma before. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I talked about betrayal, but there's this idea that the church of what the church is supposed to be that the church is supposed to be a place of healing and the church is supposed to be good and the church is supposed to be loving and when someone experiences the exact opposite of that it really can mess with your mind of going is it me or is it something else or what is love or who is God and so kind of having this validated of what happened to you is not what was supposed to happen to you you know that it's not okay so just having someone see and name something as traumatic when you've experienced abuse and trauma um, is often the first step in, in people being able to, to move on in the healing process.
1: Hmm. Yeah, so on that topic, I mean, I'm no expert. People listening most probably aren't experts on like, you know, therapy or psychology or anything like that. Um, so I mean, would that be bad for like if I, you know, a friend, you know, has, suffers like some type of religious trauma or what I think is religious trauma or whatever, mm-hmm. would it be bad for me to say, Hey, you know, that shouldn't have happened. You know, that that's religious trauma. Is would that be a bad thing to apply in that case? Or what would you recommend in those situations?
0: So I, I think that so often when we see someone in pain, a friend or a a church member or someone else mm-hmm. and see someone in pain our first instinct is to rush in and fix it and to try yeah, to say yeah. something that's going to make them feel better yeah. so i would say the first thing to do would kind of be like ask them what they need you know mm-hmm. what acknowledge the pain show some empathy so something around that sounds incredibly painful and i i if it's I don't think it would be wrong to say yes that shouldn't have happened or that that sounds traumatic mm-hmm. i'm always careful about labeling things for people if they haven't labeled it for themselves but to mm-hmm. offer something about like that sounds really traumatic that sounds like um something that would be considered abusive those kind of things i think that that could be really helpful in um And especially for someone within that religious system to be able to name it is really helpful. Like that is a big part of why I do the work that I do, you know, as a counselor, it's not my role to speak for God, speak for Christ, speak for the church. You know, I, I have count, I have clients who um, were in religious systems and they've completely left faith altogether. I have clients who have deconstructed and are reconstructing and, and, Um, wanting to stay within a faith community and those kind of things. And as a counselor, it's not my job to have an agenda of any kind. Mm -hmm. But as as a Christian, and that being kind of my underlying identity, it is really important to me that when someone represents Jesus in a way that is harmful, in a way that is abusive, for me to be able to, as someone within that system, be willing to criticize that system and be willing to examine that system and say, that is not the Jesus that I follow.
1: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I really appreciate that. Um, you mentioned the idea, which, which that's like super helpful for sure, as uh, when someone's like going through something to, you know, you know, just like sympathize with them is that's, I found that in, in my experience really helpful, but I've always wondered, like, why is it that when we first go to immediately try to fix something like you know from our point of thing is like hey you know we if we fix it then they won't feel that way anymore mm. uh, so why why do you think that from your point of view or maybe i mean if you've ever thought about this uh, but why do you think that people or humans in general just have a difficult time with the idea of just like other people just wanting to fix everything instead of just like providing sympathy
0: yeah that's a great question that's a great it, it, it's a It's a question that shows up a lot of times when people are in pain and the people who love them and support them want to stop that pain want to be there for them and want to support them and can wind up doing more harm than good even with the best of intentions because some of it comes from as a society we're just not comfortable with pain you know where (laughs) we 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 it's it's hard to be around someone who is hurting especially you know when we love them of course we're going to hurt with them and mm-hmm. so what can happen is we'll rush to help them get over the pain which can send the message of you can't you're, you're not allowed to have pain you're not allowed to mm-hmm. hurt you, or i can't handle your pain and mm-hmm. that's something we really don't want to send that message so when we rush to fix it it can come across as dismissive of the hurt and the trauma. So um, it doesn't mean that we don't want people to feel better. This is actually something as a counseling professor that I have to spend a lot of time with my students helping them understand that, yes, we got into this profession because we want to help people feel better. But before we can help them feel better, we have to acknowledge the pain we have to be willing to sit with the pain and honor that and honor that experience because um one of my favorite quotes is people begin to heal when they feel heard and so if we rush to fix they might not really feel heard in their pain they um are they get the message of you need to move on so i can be comfortable being around you versus something like um I can tell this is really hard for you and i want to be here for you in your pain or this is i wish i knew what to do to make it feel better but i don't so i'm just going to be here with you so be that takes such courage to be able to sit with someone when they're pain versus saying versus kind of like oh it's not that bad that winds up feeling really dismissive of someone's experience Mm. um The the example I think of often around religious harm um, is a lot of times that we do this with grief, you know, and and Christians do this with grief. When someone has lost someone and grief is just palpable, it's so close and it hurts so much, we engage in what is often called spiritual bypass, which means that we, you want to say, oh, you shouldn't grieve there in heaven. You know you can so it's being willing to hold two things so you can believe someone's in heaven and you can know that it's sad (laughs) that they're not with us on Mm -hmm. earth anymore and and that it's very painful to have lost them in that way so um so sometimes and that's usually coming from a place of good intention of wanting to help them feel better Mm -hmm. but it can wind up being really dismissive of the deep pain that people are feeling Mm. and you can't rush through that
1: yeah. And I would assume that a lot of times when you're a lot of the people that are struggling with these things, are already dealing with like self-doubt and lack of confidence and all like that. And so when you come to them saying, hey, you know, you shouldn't feel that way, basically, then that's that that, that makes a ton of sense. A lot of people would feel that way among other reasons. Um, yeah. So thank you for that. Uh, so, um, yeah. Uh, in one of your past interviews on the context of religious trauma surrounding divorces, you mentioned how being, and, and this was almost like kind of out of left field, like I didn't expect anyone to say this and when you were talking about it, but you mentioned how being a man often gets special treatment, uh, a lot of times in churches specifically. Can you talk about why you think that? In addition, can you talk about some of examples of when this can happen?
0: Um, yeah, i not... I don't remember exactly what the context was that you might sure. have heard. Was that on one of my podcasts that you heard yeah. me talking about yeah. that? Okay. So, I mean, that sounds like something I would say. So, of course, <laughs> <if> you heard <laughs> I would it. So, you know, I think there's a lot of reasons. I was probably, I may have been, I'm, again, I'm not exactly sure the context, but my dissertation study wound up being all women who participated in my study. Um, and I did for the researchers for the research nerds out there I did what's called a quanti- a qualitative study as opposed mm. to a quantitative study so a quantitative study which I did not do um, engages a lot of participants to get information um, specific kinds of things, and there's a lot of statistics around that. A qualitative study has m- many fewer participants, but goes really deep into their experiences. So, I, because there's not a lot of research out there on religious trauma, really wanted to take a deep dive into the experiences. And I left it really wide open about who could participate in my study about just if you hear the term religious abuse and feel like you've experienced that, I want to talk to you and hear that experience. Mm-hmm. Wound up only, I I would have loved to have talked to men, but men did they didn't have men who chose to participate in my study. Mm. And several of my participants were women who were divorced, who who felt like the religious harm that they had experienced was a part of their divorce. And many of them were getting divorced because they were being physically abused by their husbands, mm. um, often to the point where one of my participants said, "I could choose my church or I could choose." if I chose my church, I would be choosing to die. Like she really felt like um, the abuse was escalating to the point where she would have been killed by her husband if she had stayed, but the church was telling her she had to stay. So, um, so a lot of Christian churches and a lot of churches who have this rule that you must stay married no matter what, no matter what kind of abuse you're experiencing, no matter um, what is happening in your marriage. Um, are systems that tend to be rather patriarchal systems and a lot of the and so much more power and control lies with men in those systems so there's just kind of an inherent power dynamic that the man's voice is going to be listened to above a woman's voice that the man's voice is going to be given more um authority and credence and um what he has to say is more important. And in these particular instances around abuse, um, again, it was this idea that the rule that you stay married is more important to than, than your physical safety. And that sent the message, God doesn't care about my physical safety. God doesn't Mm -hmm. care about my mental health. Mm -hmm. Um, but those voices were were diminished. So any system that has a hierarchy that says that somebody's voice matters more than someone else is gonna um, that's a system that is likely to lend itself to abusive systems. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, sure. So could you possibly give us an example of like, like maybe a clear notion where someone specifically, or you think that someone being a man And affected the church's decision to listen to the man rather than the woman.
0: So I think in this instance, so one of my participants I remember saying she had been raised in this church. This church was her family. She felt really like this. This church was very meaningful to her, and her husband was only going to this church because of her. And then she felt like the church wound up choosing him because he said he wanted to stay married. And so um, now whether or not there's a direct line to him Mm -hmm. being a man and then paying more attention or him actually saying he wanted to stay in the marriage, Mm -hmm. um, I I don't, I mean, that's probably not as clear, but I think because certainly a man can experience abuse within a marriage, um, but more often than not in a heterosexual marriage, there's going to, there's, our, our system is designed that men tend to have more power and control there. And that voice is going to be a little louder and just kind of have automatic credence to it, automatic authority to it. So um I would, in those instances, I would have loved for someone to, all of the women said, my voice didn't matter, no one mm. cared about my voice because I because I was considered less than because I was a woman as opposed to he, a lot of these, and I probably shouldn't assume that people are, think, are knowing this, but a lot of these abuse situations were justified by the scripture that I think was being twisted in those instances that a woman should submit to a man. So a man justifying the abuse by saying, if she were more submissive, I wouldn't have to hurt her, those kind of things. So if that is then like, okay, well, he's the man, so therefore um, it's okay that he does that. Um, If scripture's being used to justify that kind of thing, that then gives the man even more power over the woman. Hmm.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's certainly not a a one-to-one correlation as, as far as like, you know, I, I don't know if sexism is the word or whatever, but the in those situations, it really is difficult to tell uh, if it's like, you know, are people just trying to follow the rules or like, is there an actual like, you know, implicit bias of like, you know, all the women in my life are, are never like smart about the Bible or something and therefore the next person that is, is a woman is not going to be smart about the Bible and therefore they're wrong about like, you know going against the Bible or whatever. So we must trust the man in this situation kind of thing. Um,
0: yeah, I think it's interesting too. just in all of these situations that I've experienced um, with clients who were women or with those participants, the pastors were men. Um, and I think at least in America, the vast majority of, of people in leadership positions uh, in in churches tend to be men. And so that there's just kind of a natural connection to someone who carries the same identity you do mm-hmm. in a lot of different ways. And so <laughs> yeah. I think there's kind of that inherent bias that happens mm-hmm. there that a lot of times people may not even be aware of. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, as I said earlier, abuse is, there's always power dynamics in abuse um, in abusive situations. And so certainly we can say if the flip were script and a woman was abusing a man, and the and the man was saying he wanted to leave the marriage, um, it. I'm honestly having. I I know it happens, and I don't want to dismiss that it might happen, but it's just. I think it's important to name that so often, especially in heterosexual relationships, that the abuse is by and large, um, from the man towards the woman. So I think that's part of why it's important to name that dynamic as well. Um, It certainly can happen the opposite direction, but power in those systems so often lies more with the man.
1: Hmm. Yeah, really fascinating. Okay, so uh, you've mentioned how families can sometimes cause trauma when they don't attempt to keep a family member in church or prevent them from walking away from Christianity. Can you talk a little bit about how that can happen?
0: Um, So at, when you're saying family members try to make someone stay in a religious system, mm. that that I've said that can cause trauma, those kind of mm. things.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, so that's like super vague, of course. Um, but, and there's sometimes like systemic things where like a family member's like you know, you talked about like the Jehovah's Witness or whatever, where they like completely shun all of their family. Sure.
0: Um, Yeah. So, so I imagine if, if you heard me say that on a podcast, again, I'm just guessing, but I was probably talking about at that time was something around what happens a lot of times when people experience religious harm, another mental health issue they may experience is grief. And sometimes that's grief because they feel like they lose their family or sometimes people's families choose the church over them so in these instances of a woman who's divorcing her husband because he's been physically abusing her there are many instances where the family might say well the church is right and i can't be in relationship with you anymore i have to you know take the side of the church um I I always say, watch out for when you're being asked to take sides (laughs) in general, when you're asked to take sides and you're being set up that God's on one side or another. Um, Mm -hmm. just explore that a little bit, but, um, but I think what certainly, you know, the grief that can come when you feel like you've been abandoned by your family is can be traumatic. But when I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with a family hoping, you know, with parents hoping that their child might experience the same faith that they do, the same belief that they do, I think that's that's normal and that happens in almost all religious systems. Um, but there's a difference between exposing someone to a religious system and imposing or forcing um, that religious system on someone. Mm -hmm. So I would say a lot of it, again, comes down to kind of power and control. When someone's trying to control someone's um, experience within their own faith or their own religious system, when things are being um, imposed on people as opposed to being allowed to stay in relationship with someone, even if you have some different beliefs than they do.
1: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, there's a lot of stuff that gets into that. I'm going to assume you have people like almost like, you know, if you're a parent and your child, you know, is having doubts or whatever, it's like, shoot, I was, I must've been a bad parent and you're having all these doubts and you're getting defensive about that. And, and of course, I would assume you have, like, um, yeah, I don't know, um, so, I mean, what, what would you recommend for someone that does someone have, does have someone that is, like, a family member's, like, you know, doubting or, you know, leaving the faith or whatever, I mean, you know, like, um, there almost, there's sometimes a worry of like, you know, the person, even if it's a family member, like almost being a bad influence on you because they're not a Christian anymore or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I, I mean, how, how do you, um, uh, how would you recommend going about all that?
0: Yeah. So there's, I think there's, there's a continuum here of, of systems as well, you know? Um, so, so there are some systems that would be considered cults kind of on the far mm-hmm. end of the harm perspective and mm-hmm. then there's systems that are still just kind of high control systems yeah. and then there are systems that are a little more open to um to kind of like we're here we'd love for you to be a part of us but you know you can have a life outside of the religious system as well mm-hmm. and um and so when i talk about I'm going down a little side road but I'm going to come back to your question. So when I talk about that, I study and treat religious trauma. A lot of people say, oh, you treat ex cult members or you, (laughs) you know, you work with cults. And I'm like, well, yes, I can. But I actually look for stuff more in the mainstream (laughs) religious systems as well. But certainly within those those really extreme systems that do fall on that end of the continuum that we would consider cults where they are high control, where you're not allowed interaction. Outside of the religious system, where you're not allowed reaction, um, you know, interactions with people, and so leaving the faith inherently means leaving your family because they're going to stay in that system, and so, so that's a, probably a little different dynamic than what I think you're asking about. Just maybe when parents have a child who is questioning or is doubting some things or exploring some other religions or those kind of things. Um sure. So, I, from a counseling standpoint, what I would say is forcing someone to do something and of course, this is a developmental, you know, like when you're, when your kid's five years old, they don't get a choice if they go to church or not, if that's where you're going, <laughs> you know, your kid's going to church with you. But as, um, as the kid grows up and develops some independence and is able to, to think about things uh, in a more layered and, um developmentally appropriate way i I tend to think that questions are good that that um every time i and i certainly have gone through my fair share of um dark nights of the soul as far as my faith goes and doubts and have um and when i do that it hasn't been helpful to have people say well you just got to believe what's been helpful for me is to have people who say who get curious about it and who wanna talk about it and who allow space for those questions and who don't try to give simple trite answers, who say, if you're answering, if you're asking questions, you're still engaged in that, so that's good. And I think that if we have a secure faith, we're not threatened by questions. If we have a secure faith, we're not threatened by someone we love going off and exploring something else. Um, You know, we trust them to do what they need to for them. And, um, and it may wind up being really different than what we believe. And if but if we exclude them and say, well, I can't be a part of your life, if you believe something else, that almost always then that's going to create this dynamic of well that faith was more important than i am so i don't want anything to do with that faith it could create Mm. that dynamic um there so it doesn't usually accomplish you know ultimatums don't usually accomplish what people hope to accomplish
1: (laughs) wow that's that's really interesting yeah um something dr slade and i talked about was that a lot of the times the things that we're trying to get people to stay into christianity Is often the things that push people away. Um, Yeah,
0: and yeah, and this this idea of that we have to have certainty in order for something to be um, important or something to be meaningful, Mm -hmm. I think can it just it starts feeding into that need to control someone else. So, um, so I think if 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 God can trust us. To kind of, um, you know, that that quote by Tolkien, that not all who wander are lost. (laughs) that if we can trust people in their wandering, um, that it's not about necessarily them coming to what we consider the right place, which is where we are, but allowing them to come to where, and trusting God, if you believe in God, to trust God, where God's going to take them.
1: Hmm. Yeah, so on the long lines of questioning, when I... Think of like, you know, the typical, I guess, stereotypical, super fundamentalist church or whatever of like, no questions, no doubting at all. Um, You said something earlier that made it like kind of click. And I wonder if there's an association there of, uh, you know, you have pastors that are often seen as like, not as God, but like always right, never wrong. Yes.
0: Yes.
1: And, and I've always wondered, like, how does someone ever come to that conclusion? Because it's like, of course, they're human. They make mistakes. I mean, scholars make mistakes all the time. Nonetheless, you're pastor down the street that has a maybe a bachelor's education. So, like, why yeah. would we ever put him on such a pedestal? And something that you said was that, like, if you're told repeatedly never to doubt and never to question, then the only assumption is your pastor is always right.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you think
1: there's a question, does that resonate
0: with you at all? Yes, those are excellent points about setting someone up to where they can never be wrong. You know, these systems where there is this clear hierarchy that sends the message that the pastor knows more about God than you do, or mm-hmm. the pastor's closer to God than you are, um, are, are systems that... Abuse can happen in any system. So I don't want to, to say that it only happens in certain kinds of systems, but those are the systems that often with that that can be those breeding grounds for abuse that we talk about. So so um, that's that power and control. And so if if you have a religious leader who is saying, I'm never wrong, God speaks through me and only through me, and I have all the answers, then just use a lot of caution in that system because that sets up this dynamic to where you can never question and they can always play what we call the guard the god card you know they can always say well god's on my side you can't question me because i'm the authority on this and that sets up again that power and control and i I've known a lot of pastors in my time. I've got a lot of friends and even family members who are pastors and it's a tough job. Like it's a really hard, hard job. And I, Mm -hmm. and so I don't want to sound like I'm dragging pastors when I'm talking about this kind of thing, but I think, and I do think most pastors probably enter into a calling like that with a, a, a clear heart, like really at, from a servant's place. But some recognize the power that comes with that position, that recognize the power that comes when God is on your side and when you can tell people what is right and what is wrong. And so some enter into it for the power it gives them. Mm-hmm. Some get in these positions of power and can get a little drunk with power and sure. recognize like, oh, people are, people are listening to me. What's going on here? Okay. and so that that being drunk with power can happen too and so it's a really hard job for someone who spends every Sunday with people looking at you listening to you looking to you for guidance and direction it's such a hard job but it's such a responsibility to take seriously and humbly because um because setting yourself up in a way that you can never be wrong really is just setting yourself up for a fall um And not allowing anyone to doubt you, I think, really puts you on a level with God. And I think that's really dangerous.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And kind of on the lines of, like, one of the consequences you mentioned earlier was when people are, like, in the midst of, like, you know, should I get a divorce or whatever? And they're, like, you know, they're literally being, like, physically abused. And they're, like, you know, like, the one, like, like, I probably would have died. I think I would have died. And like the very fact that it's ever a question is crazy that like, yeah. that people be like, okay, we're going to follow the, you know, this specific pastor's interpretation, uh, which is not allowed to be questioned yes, uh, of a passage over this person's life. Wow. And there's a really interesting balance there because it's like, you know, as a, as a, as a woman, like I want to follow God and I think God's saying this, but I also don't want to die. (laughs) So, 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 you know, in that situation, you know, and it's no wonder that people, someone like that's going to be like, okay, well, obviously God never said that and therefore it's all wrong or something like that. But, uh, um,
0: and think about on that Zach that sure that if you've been raised in that system where you're not supposed to question that pastor Mm -hmm. who says you must stay, and now all of a sudden you feel like your life's in danger, but it's so ingrained in you that yeah. you're not allowed to question and you're not allowed to leave how, I mean, you're already dealing with abuse, but now you you've got this existential spiritual crisis of, mm-hmm. am I disobeying God if I do this and having to decide to disobey God or preserve my life? Like no religious leader should ever put someone in that kind of position. That's a mm-hmm. clear abuse of power, I believe.
1: Hmm, yeah, so in that regards, I mean, how? I mean, I don't, you, I don't think you claim to be like any kind of theologian or whatever, but maybe you do. But no, I just <laughs> spend a lot of time um, in church. But yeah, um, <laughs> I mean, how do you recommend going about that? Because it's like, from a Christian standpoint, it's like, hey, you know, I think that's what the Bible says, and none of that you know, pastors have to like. Be willing to stand by the bible but then if how do, you, how do you balance that with the idea of like physical abuse and trauma and religious trauma and all that like what do you think about all that
0: so are you asking how i reconcile what the bible says about marriage no, with uh,
1: specifically like how, how should we approach that when when we have a um almost like a contradiction of of things that like you either go with the bible or the idea of like something really bad happening or possibly happening.
0: Well, I think a lot of that yeah comes down to how you interpret scripture and I I don't interpret any scripture saying that a woman has to stay in a marriage that is physically abusive to her. Um so kind of I I, I can't reconcile a god that would ask that of of a woman. Um mm-hmm. for just being what i know of god and god's inherent worth that we all have just by being children of god and so from from me personally it's it's an like that doesn't mean that you make it a good versus evil and that there isn't still work for you know that god still loves the husband in that situation certainly um and there's spiritual accountability to be had there um and i would love to see churches being willing to address those kind of issues with the husband while validating the woman's concerns mm-hmm. around that
1: mm-hmm. yeah um so church discipline this has been something that's been really interesting because you know a lot of churches don't even well so, to be honest, I'm, I'm no scholar on this topic in any way at all. Um, <laughs> but at least the churches that I've been growing up in, a lot of churches in my area at least, like, you know, there's that, there's this idea of like, okay, you know. The first step is to start privately and informally. Jesus tells it to do it this way. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Then the next step, if that doesn't work... If the first conversation goes poorly and you remain convinced your friend is sinning, then you might follow up with him another conversation or two. Yet, soon enough, you'll need to take the matter to step two. Jesus set it up this way. If he does not listen, take one or two along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And then step three, if it's not resolved, Jesus explains, if he refused to listen to them, tell it to the church. The article reads, a clear biblical example of this relationship between leaders and the congregation occurs in 1 Corinthians 5. Paul raises the subject, a church member sleeping with his father's wife. He tells the church to remove him after declaring that he has already passed judgment on the man himself. Then finally, this brings us to step 4. Once the church has been given sufficient time to pray for an individual and encourage him or her to repent, the church leaders should raise the matter again. Assuming Joe has not repented and continued his lying, the elders must play the part of Paul, expressing their judgment and calling upon the church to make it the same. He says, in my own congregation, that sounds like this. The elders recommend that the congregation remove Joe from membership for unrepentant lying as an act of discipline. This comes as a motion from the elders. If the vote passes, usually two-thirds or three-fourths is required, but church constitutions vary. The church will treat the person as an outsider. Jesus says, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. I, that seems very similar to, I don't know if that actually happened in any of the scenarios of your research, mm-hmm. but Different. what are your thoughts on from a from a counseling perspective of like, is there a good and a bad way to do that? Uh I mean, it seems like there could be a, an endless amount of terrible ways to do that, and that could end terribly. <laughs> yes,
0: there are. <laughs> so, yes, there are an endless amount of terrible ways to do that, and <laughs> yes, it has shown up in many clients in my office through the years, and in some mm-hmm. of the participants in my study. You know, talked about meetings being had about them behind their backs. Um, the the church systems being, and when I talk about that second category of abuse, that Um, these systems being told to what we call break fellowship with them. I've had people describe people who see them in public and turn around and walk away, you know, people they've grown up with and known their whole life. And now all of a sudden Mm -hmm. they will not talk to them. Um, I consider that religious abuse, certainly religious harm. Um, So church discipline is an interesting kind of theological concept. And (laughs) certainly every every denomination, every church has different ways that they go about it. If they go about it at all, there are many churches that don't have formal kinds of disciplinary processes Mm. as well. But um, what I would say is if the church or even a religious leader has decided that someone is wrong or messing up and that they feel like they need to confront them, I would just take Mm. a minute and really explore some motivations like what what's going on? Like, why is this a big deal? Why are we feeling the need to, to discipline this person? Um, and is it about power and control? Is it about, um, feeling like we're going to lose some control if we don't do this? Um, or is it that we see someone in pain and we want to help someone in pain? And, and it might be, both of those. But I think some of the work of the community of the church is to be a place, be a sanctuary, be that place that it's supposed to be, um, that where people can be vulnerable, where people can come in their pain and their struggles and be honest about it and receive support and not shame and not punishment. Um, And I just, I just think of Jesus Eating with sinners, you know. I mean, that wasn't that wasn't. Um, he didn't go out and and, and and impose church discipline on people. He sat I down know. and had a meal, and yep. you know, said, "Let's have a relationship and talk about things." And so, so shame is very rarely a motivator, um, and um, expulsion from a system, while it can create a lot of trauma, is not something that usually makes people change their minds about that kind of thing. So mm-hmm. so that's a little bit, but certainly the effects of it, of someone experiencing expulsion from a system that they grew up in, that was their village, that was all that they knew, those kind of things, mm-hmm. um, it c- is often experienced as very, very harmful and doesn't convey a loving God that wants a relationship with them, usually. Mm-hmm. So, wh- you know, I think about the dynamic that I use often with my students when I have a student who's struggling with something or who maybe has an ethics issue that I feel like I need to, to address and I have a meeting with them, the first thing I'm going to say is, what's going on? You know, help me understand this. So to come with that kind of, um, as Ted Lasso says, and I believe he was quoting Wallwood kind of be curious, not judgmental. So, you know, if you're going to someone and say, it looks like you're struggling, what's going on? how can we support you? How can we help you? That's so much more, um, I believe, Christ-like, but certainly a better experience for someone than coming in with someone pointing their finger saying, you know, you're messing up and you got to stop doing that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's interesting because there's two sides to it. It's like, I know I'm, some people will say, I know I'm messing up and I just can't help it or, or I struggle with it, or whatever. And there's another side of it's like, uh, I you know I just completely don't think it's wrong. And the I don't know if, if both side, both situations. If you say, hey, you're doing something wrong, I don't think that solves either side of those situations. Um,
0: <laughs> and, and that would come back to, I think again, those issues of power and control. Of I would rather have someone. I would rather say okay then we have different thoughts on that and let's continue to figure out how we can be in community together rather than to try to impose what i think is um a better interpretation of something around that mm-hmm. yeah yeah and so, it's about trusting people mm-hmm. it's about trusting god to work in people and about trusting people mm-hmm. to deal with stuff on their own as well
1: mm-hmm. interesting so why why do you think that i mean from your perspective why do you think that um I don't know. Just showing people, you know, what the Bible says, and, and those situations of like, you know, uh, church uh, discipline and all that. Why, from your perspective, why is that not very helpful, or why is kicking people out basically, you know, not very helpful from your idea?
0: Well, I'm I'm coming from the perspective of often being the counselor for that person that's been kicked out, you know, or <laughs> yeah. being the person who's had scriptures weaponized against them or Mm -hmm. kind of theology in the Bible really used against them as a weapon, as opposed to as a, as a way to, to heal. And so, um, so I think a lot of that comes down to, again, how you choose to interpret certain texts, um, whether you're proof texting certain um, texts to make them mean something that, you know, that, they may or may not mean in context and in the greater picture of the story of God and, and his relationship with us throughout um, history. So so what I would say would be a better, it would be better to go to someone and ask, how do you see God working in this situation? You know, how do you interpret the scripture that says this rather than you messed up because scripture says this? So kind of asking and letting someone do the work without feeling like you have to do the work for them just generates more conversation and trust rather than um this power dynamic that makes someone bend to someone's will.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I um just from my experiences with people, when I if, if I've ever or I see people saying, hey, like this is what you're supposed to do, I oftentimes I'll see people being like, hey, you know, I don't want to be controlled. I feel controlled when you just tell me what to do. Therefore, I'm going to do the opposite of what you just said. Whether that has any like logical um, or like actually has any truth to it, I don't care. I'm just going to do the opposite because I'm not going to be controlled. Um, that that's just the very th- first thing that came to mind there. Um, I mean,
0: certainly in systems and developmentally in in family systems and individuals, you know, the, that rebellious, independent um, nature can show up in, in lots of different ways. Um, but I think that that's, that often can be a time of someone gaining independence if, if you're, if they're allowed to do that in a safe way.
1: Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And of course, in a lot of these situations, there isn't much dependence at all or independence at all. And,
0: yeah, exactly. Right. And and in those systems that engage in that kind of church discipline that is a swooping in and saying you're out of line with what we say is right, is much more about power and control than about community hmm. and allowing a space to struggle and be vulnerable and that kind of thing. Hmm. So yes, really that's not yeah. usually a system that's going to allow a lot of independence if they're already hmm. engaging in that kind of church. Yeah.
1: Discipline. Yeah. Sure. So, um. Yeah. Can you talk about how women can be traumatized when when a woman is told they can't be a pastor or serve at church.
0: So, I imagine some of your listeners might not like what I'm about to say <laughs> around this. I don't know, but um so in my study there were some women who were in leadership positions, who were ministers, and they reported the religious trauma being that they were told that yes that they shouldn't be in this position and and i know women in ministry is a is a big topic it's a charge topic so i just encourage your listeners to whatever emotion is rising in you now to just take a (laughs) breath and and just kind of try to understand the experience of um, an individual within something like this so Mm -hmm. so Beverly Green is a a researcher that I quoted a lot in my dissertation, and she uses the phrase legitimized inequality when you use theology to legitimize an inequality or legitimize one identity being more important than another identity, especially, um, to God. And, um, Mm -hmm. as far as worthiness goes. And so, um, so the women who feel like they've experienced religious trauma by being told they can't be in the ministry, and and I'm not sure when this is going to come out, but certainly just in the last couple of weeks, big news with the Southern Baptist Convention saying, you know, the, kicking out churches that aren't ordaining women. So, so this is, I know, a very relevant topic. Um, I, it's, but the experience of the women within that is basically being told, no, you heard God wrong. And I, as a Christian, am not going to limit how God can speak to someone. Um, there, If you go through the Bible, you can certainly find voice, find verses that say women should not be in leadership. You can find verses that say women should be in leadership. You can find examples of women in leadership. Um And you can choose kind of what you want to do with that as far as your theology goes. I'm not Mm -hmm. here to, to impose a theology on someone, but from a counselor perspective to talk about the mental health impact of women who've been told that they're not good enough or their voice doesn't matter or God can't work through them. Um, just is can be incredibly undermining to um, to their feelings of worth, to what they believe their calling is and what they believe they're, um, what they've been gifted in talent and um, the talents they've been given. So it's a much bigger issue than that, but that's the first thing that comes yeah. to mind when you ask that question.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you mentioned that idea of like, women being told like, your God is not talking to you god did not tell you to become a pastor or whatever right um you know from the perspective of man or you know typically this might be like a pastor saying this who is a man and they're like yeah i mean the bible says it right here that women shouldn't be pastors therefore i don't know what or what you've been told or what you've been heard or what you've heard, or where you got this idea from. But obviously it wasn't from God, because in the Bible it says right here that it, it can't be. So, I mean, and biblical interpretation aside, because like, you know, that's a hot topic, and um, like, it, no matter how like one concludes that, like, like sure you surely you admit that like, sometimes what we think God's telling us isn't true, correct?
0: Um I think that I am really careful about f- feeling like I need to speak for God in someone else's life at any point. <laughs> yeah,
1: um, sure.
0: you know, I really feel like I trust God to do that,, <laughs> you know, I trust God, so that's speaking from Paula from a personal standpoint, mm-hmm. you know, not um from the theological standpoint that I mm-hmm. believe, um, and so. If a woman were to come to me and say, I believe God is calling me to the ministry for me to say, oh, no, God didn't say that feels really, really arrogant to me to think that mm. I heard what God said more than what someone else feels like God said. Mm. And, um, and in that argument, certainly, you know scripture has been used to justify everything throughout history there are verses you want to find a verse to justify slavery you can find it you want to find a verse to justify women in ministry you know there's neither jew nor greek or male nor female or any you know there's verses that can um say that there's so if you want to take individual verses you can find lots of things and you can justify lots of things and Mm. so I'm always careful when someone says the Bible is clear <laughs> about this. <laughs> to me, I worship God. I don't worship the Bible. The Bible points me mm-hmm. to the God that I worship. Um, mm-hmm. So that's that. That's probably more into the controversial <laughs> theology than, than yeah, we sure. totally wanted to be. And it's obviously clear, like I, I my pastor is a woman, I, um, you know, have no, I, and mm-hmm. I believe 100% she's called by God to be in that position. So, so people who put limitations on God always just, I just kind of, I'm a little cautious around that. Mm. If someone has Mm. a different perspective, I'll respect that. But I want to, but I just always want to use caution around people who are taking on the power of God for themselves, saying that I'm right because God said this.
1: Yeah, no, it's interesting because like almost all these conversations go back to some idea of like some super confidence about like what god is saying or how we're reading the bible and of course there's a thousand reasons to not be overconfident about that and um, a, a billion different reasons throughout history where people have been wrong even though they felt like super confident about something like that right um
0: i know god loves me I, that's, that's, I'm super confident about that.
1: And I know God loves (laughs) everyone
0: else too. I'm super confident about that. And I'm okay with, with being, with, um, with letting everybody else sort of figure out the rest of it. Yeah.
1: Yeah, for sure. So, um, on the other hand though, so from the place of a woman who is being told, Hey, you know, like I, like it almost, um, It's almost like, you know, I'm having struggles putting this into words, but you know, from a woman's standpoint, like when they feel like, Hey, or woman or man or whatever, you know, God is telling me to do this. And then someone, their favorite pastor their maybe even their idol in their life or whatever says, Hey, like, no, God did not tell you to do that. Uh, Can you walk us through like why you call that traumatizing? Like what exactly does that do to a person?
0: Yeah, I I think, um, I mean, this whole idea around gatekeeping God is is one that's really interesting to me. But so I think looking at what a woman experiences when she's told that, and again from a from a discussion standpoint, I might say a better question would be, why do you think that? Versus you shouldn't <laughs> think that. <laughs> right. So, so that asking rather than telling can always um, lead to more of a conversation than than the imposition, but. You know, I think that when your voice, when you are told that you are less than, and that is what is often implied with that, when there is that legitimized inequality, when you're told that your voice is less important, when you're told that what you, what God is saying to you doesn't matter, the toll that it can take on your sense of self-worth, on um, on your trust in your own voice and your trust in hearing the voice of God, um, you know it. And the experiences—actually, my my pastor and I do a podcast on women in ministry. We have a whole episode on this, and we mm-hmm. talked about kind of two different roads of harm that can be experienced. The first is women who don't even feel like that's an avenue for them—kind um, of that career choice or that calling being shut off—and then the experiences of women in the ministry, which are often very typical experiences of sexism, but um, having to constantly prove themselves and work harder than a man might have to do in that position. That's kind of the very definition of privilege. Um, you know, the idea of gender privilege, male privilege, race privilege, those kind of things. A lot of people don't under, when they hear the term privilege, they don't necessarily understand what it means to say someone has white privilege or someone has um male privilege but when someone has male privilege all it means is there are things that men don't have to think about that women have to think about Um, you know a really silly example not in the religious world but a really silly example is one time i was driving to the store with my husband i was driving and i pulled into a parking space Um, that was a few rows over from a closer parking space. And he said, why are you parking over here? There's one right at the door right over there. And I said, well, I don't want to park right beside that van, which he had not even noticed because as a man, he doesn't have to think about where he parks in a parking lot, you know, and it was so ingrained in me that I have to always pay attention to my surroundings and always pay attention to what might happen and that kind of protection. So that's when we say privilege, it's just things that, he doesn't have to think about. So like in that episode, my pastor talks about, you know, in the line after church, you know, a lot of times when a man is the pastor, they'll come through and they'll get good sermon or they'll get thoughts or they'll get some feedback on it. And she'll might get things like, Oh, your shoes are so cute. Or, you know, people will want to hug her all the time as opposed to how that a man might experience that so there's the experience of the call to ministry and being shut down but also um kind of the constant difficulty of having to always work a little harder than a man might have to in that same position Hmm.
1: yeah yeah that's really interesting so i mean hmm. why why do you think that like if if i'm you know pretend I'm the the you know the pastor that says hey you know you you can't be uh, a pastor in the church or you can't be a woman pastor how if you could maybe just a little bit more detail just so for the people that didn't get the first time why would that get translated to you have less worth or your opinion doesn't matter
0: I think anytime so the so if we think about there's the content of that and then there's the message that's underneath that and the message that's underneath that is you're not you don't matter you're not as important you don't god doesn't care about you as much god doesn't um want you to speak for god as much um and so that idea of i felt confident in this call But now maybe I didn't. And kind of this whole questioning of, am I good enough to do this? Why am I not good enough? Why am I not worthy? Why does someone who seems to, you know, maybe not even knowing as much about the Bible as I do, why does it seem easier for them to kind of have this anointment that they can do it when I can't do it? So I think there's, it's, it's hard for people in places of privilege to understand what it feels like to live in this identity that's always being what we call othered, always being pushed out and always being treated as less than and the toll that that can take over time of sometimes that can get internalized and people start believing that I'm less than, start believing that I don't matter as much.
1: Does that answer
0: that a little bit clearer? Yeah, totally,
1: yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I get that a lot as far as, you know, um, in my other interviews on like hail and original sin, that that concept, that underlying message often gets brought up and sometimes it's even more explicit than just, you know, underlying it gets actually said like, hey, you know, you're less valuable because you're a sinner or whatever. Um, But um, on on the other hand, like, people listening, there might still people be people that like, Hey, you know, it doesn't matter because that's what the Bible says. Okay. And, um, if their feelings are hurt, that's what the Bible says, or if they're traumatized and have depression or whatever later, because of, you know, you were a terrible pastor, it doesn't matter because that's what the Bible says. Um, you, you, I mean, maybe not that as dramatic, but I mean, <laughs> I would hope people get the point, but the, but, um, like, I mean, how how are we supposed to be people people supposed to deal with that? Like, how do we approach that? So you mentioned the idea of like you know asking like, hey, you know, why why do you think that God is speaking to you? Um, is there anything else you wanted to add? Like, how you would approach that in a way that, for the people that still think that, hey, you know, like, if from a man's perspective that's been to you know your typical church in America that thinks that men only men should be pastors, like, there's no situation where you end the conversation being hey you're actually right god did tell you that so how would you recommend that going being brought about
0: um i mean i would say i have seen some men change their minds about okay that whole thing um just in general that that can happen but it but that's wouldn't be necessarily the you're right that usually if someone's coming from that perspective that conversation is not gonna change someone's <laughs> mind in that. And so what I would say in general is, I believe the religious community in America or even in general around the world is big enough to where if if there is a church that wants to ascribe to that theology, then that's one of the great things about living in a country that really engages in religious freedom is they can have a church. I would just say to be really clear about that But what as a counselor, um, and as a woman, I have to say too, I would just, would hurt for the little girls in that church who never see the option that there are some places where she could be a pastor, where there are some places where that would be a safe space for her. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. so, So kind of not in those systems saying, this is what we believe, we believe only men should be pastors, but there are some systems that believe women can be pastors as well. Mm. And they still believe in Jesus. And they're still Christians yeah. and they're still, you know, those kind of things as well. So not being, even if you don't believe it, not being threatened by it and not feeling the need to control what other mm. people believe and how other people interpret that would mm. be what I would ask for in those situations. If someone has done a really thorough examination and been open to other interpretations and that kind of thing, I can respect that people have different opinions than I do on a lot of different things and different interpretations of God on a lot of different things. I, where I get riled up is when they try to say, and because I believe this, this is the only right belief in, and I and no other church should be allowed to have women ministers or no woman should be allowed to be a minister. Hmm. You can say, this is our system, but there are systems where it is safe and that's accepted.
1: Hmm. Really fascinating, yeah. Yeah, no, that's very helpful. Okay, so uh, last couple questions here. Um, As far as, you briefly talked about it, but for for all these situations that you researched and maybe even some things that you've talked about with um, your clients through your, um, your own job and all that, what would you recommend or what could have or should have been done differently that would have solved a lot of these problems?
0: what could have happened to have prevented that religious trauma yeah you know i think one of the key words is empathy is um is seeing when these clients as humans as seeing them as someone with an experience that deserves to be heard Mm -hmm. and seen as opposed to going right to well it doesn't matter what you're feeling because you got to stay married or it doesn't matter what you're feeling because, you know, God does God says this. So just any amount of sitting down and, and seeing someone through the lens of a human being, um, yeah. someone that God loves would be the first step. And systems that are very legalistic, very rules focused, are typically not very empathetic systems, are not systems that are going to see people. And that doesn't mean they have to be all touchy feely. That doesn't mean they can't engage logic and that kind of thing. But just recognizing that someone's experience is valid. Um, believing someone when they say, I'm getting beat up every day. As opposed to well he says he's not beating you up every day so must not be happening so believing people's experience and having space for that experience um and really um religious leadership and religious systems just releasing the need to control and and impose and look at more how to connect and communicate and love
1: Hmm. yeah yeah that's yeah you know uh, as as we mentioned a hundred times in this interview love empathy listening um
0: yeah
1: yeah that that, that makes a lot of sense yeah.
0: and um, that's the jesus that hmm. i see all through the gospels is <laughs> yeah. the jesus that you know sees that looks someone in the eye when he's healing and um and sees the person not just the duty that he's doing so um And, you know, again, pastor's jobs are really hard. I know it's really hard and I don't want to undermine how hard it is to to be with people in their pain and to deal in systems and deal with a group of people is hard (laughs) because even in the healthiest systems, there's a lot of um, disagreement and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, So I really hope pastors also have places where they can be seen and heard and experience empathy and have a safe place for them to Mm -hmm. struggle, too.
1: Yeah, so you talked in your dissertation and a lot of your work about the idea of uh, people um, confusing what God was saying with, uh, you know, what other people have heard and having issues differentiating that. Uh, Could you talk about just the general idea of how that happens and why it occurs like that?
0: Yeah, one of the the themes that came up as well um, was how some people, when they experience religious harm, religious trauma, church hurt, any of those ways that we might label this, that some people really conflate their experiences with the church or with a religious leader or religious system with God. And it's it's not that this pastor abused me, it's that God abused me um, or this pastor and God abused me. And some people through that process can pull that apart and say, This was a human um, and God wasn't of that. And some people, it remains conflated and it remains a betrayal from God and the pastor and the system and the theology and those kind of things. And so, you know, with healing, there's no one right or wrong way to heal. Um, The people who, this is a gross generalization, but the people who remain with that conflation often wind up rejecting religious systems and exit religious systems because they cannot be a part of a religious system that abused them um Mm. and some and but people who can pull that apart are often people who say this was not of god i still believe in god um or not but I, but oftentimes they will say, "I still believe in God and can find God in a healthier religious system."
1: Hmm. Yeah. So, and your, um, and your when you do your, you know, counseling sessions and all that, you talked about like your goal, or you're not supposed to be, when, maybe even it's not even helpful to try to talk them out of it. Um, yeah. But at the same time, like. I mean, do you think that's like extremely difficult to do in those situations? Have you ever had that conversation with, with one of someone you're counseling?
0: Yeah. So my role as a counselor in that situation mm-hmm. is not to say that one is better than the other, like not mm-hmm. to to have an agenda that, that you need to understand God didn't do this, even though I might personally believe that because I don't believe God would do that. Um, <laughs> right. But it, as a counselor... I think it is helpful to assess where they are with that to assess what they believe about that, because that can impact what would be helpful for them in a healing process. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to respect wherever they are with that. And if they are mad at God. They can be mad at god they can be mad at. God. i mean i believe that I, really, I think god can handle that from a personal perspective but also from a um, mental health standpoint and from my role as a counselor mm-hmm. it's not my role to say well you don't need to be mad at god because that wasn't god that was a human system or that was the mm-hmm. church that wasn't god but knowing that knowing that they're mad at god then we can work through that in the way that they want to work through that or if someone comes in saying this system really messed me up, but church is important to me, or my faith is important to me, and I want to figure out if I want to go back to a different kind of church or find a church that's healthier, then we can work through that. And that might be the process of pulling that apart for them, pulling apart Mm -hmm. what they believe was the pastor, what they believe was God. But it's all in the counseling aspect, driven by what the client says they want to do.
1: Yeah, yeah, true. That makes sense. Yeah. So, from, I mean, have you thought much about the idea of why some people respond negatively in these situations, and it seems like some people in the exact same situations respond differently?
0: You know, I don't think we have just the with to put my researcher hat on. I got all these hats: mm-hmm. got my researcher hat and my <laughs> counselor hat and my professor hat, teacher hat, yeah. and those kind of things. But from a researcher standpoint, I don't think we have any clear data about what indicates one person is going to have that conflation versus another. Sometimes, you know, when I talked about those three types of, of um, the ways the, who, who's the abuser, if the pastor is saying, God has chosen you for this, and then they sexual abuse, sexually abuse the, the child, you know, if theology or God is used as a justification for that abuse, it makes sense that that would be harder to pull apart. Um, if that was used and they believed that, you know, as part of the abuse, but, um, but as to what indicates what one person is going to believe and one person is another, I, I don't know a way to predict that. I haven't seen any patterns.
1: Yeah. Mm. Yeah. That, that's a really interesting point because it, I would assume it is a really extremely complex. So to expect to pull a pattern out of that would be, I mean, if there is a pattern, it's like there's so many things <laughs> different going on that it would be difficult to tell from a research research standpoint, at least.
0: Yeah, I think as we get more research around this and mm-hmm. as we're able to even name terms and we're able mm-hmm. to have definitions around things, then we'll have more things that we can quantify mm-hmm. and we'll be able to do some of that research. But right now, we're just not there.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that, that is really, really fascinating. So... um <coughs> i'm so sorry sure uh um, just just one last question here so and or maybe you can say if, if there's anything else you didn't you wanted to mention um from like you know we've we've heard the word church hurt and like you know we everyone basically everyone knows someone that like left the faith because they they you know someone to them did something wrong to them at church and they concluded hey you know all Christians are like that or whatever, therefore God can't be true or something like something along those lines and I mean maybe you can walk us what are you what is your idea of like how people conclude that because it just to, to a lot of people that's not gonna make any sense uh, so how, how can some people go from like someone did something wrong to that must be God that is wrong or doesn't exist or something
0: You know, I think we do this in a lot of different areas of our life without even realizing we're doing something. We have experiences and then we generalize it to the broader world. You know, we have an experience um, in one arena and then we think that applies to all these different experiences. So, you know, I think generally speaking, if people have more experiences than their Aware that there's lots of different ways about thinking about God, lots of different ways about experiencing God, lots of different ways about of of experiencing your pastor, lots of different approaches that a pastor have. But if you've only had one pastor your whole life, and that's been the one representation of God that you've seen, <clears throat> then it makes sense that you think this is how God is. Hmm. So I think that part of that is just you know near broadening our view and our experiences in general, hmm. so that we don't. Um, have a really narrow understanding of anything, of what any experiences are. Because, you know, if if you're in kindergarten and you have an awful teacher, then you're going to tend to think teachers are awful. Um, But then you get to first grade and you have a wonderful teacher, then it's easier to kind of, you know, have a lived experience that changes what you thought. It doesn't change that you had an awful experience, but it just adds an additional experience to that.
1: Yeah. Well, and uh, to even add on to that is if you have three or four or five teachers, which is like, you know, what are the chances of that happening that are absolutely, they're all terrible. Yeah. But at the same time, like if someone has five teachers that are bad in a row, they're surely going to conclude all teachers are bad. Sure. But, but like, that's not a good example of like how all teachers are.
0: Yeah. And there's a lot. <clears throat> this is a personal kind of thing that I'm okay. saying. There's a lot of people who have a lot of really bad church experiences, Mm -hmm. who have a lot of really bad religious experience. I, and I know that like, you know, when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail and I'm a counselor who treats religious trauma. So I see religious trauma everywhere, but there's a lot of people who call themselves Christians who are weaponizing scripture and who are um, doing things that In the name of jesus that i don't agree with so i think it makes sense why people might have a more generalized idea that religion is bad or that god is bad if that's their only experience Mm -hmm. which could happen three or four or five or ten times Mm
1: -hmm. yeah and not only that but a lot of these topics were someone that's like on the other end of like you know the The person that isn't traumatized, like they might be looking at thinking like, oh, that's totally normal. That's just what, you know, we got to follow what the Bible says. And they're not looking at it from the perspective of someone that has been traumatized by it. And therefore, they don't see all the wrong that's happened. So there might actually be more trauma in the church that they don't see. Therefore, that's why they don't conclude that, you know, churches are all bad compared to someone that's been through the trauma. And they see all this trauma. They have a better perspective on it. So, and in a lot of ways, like these people that are actually, you know, think that all churches are bad, there might actually be a lot of truth to that, that we're just missing. So, yeah, that's interesting.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, there's a lot of the church in America with that. I don't see a lot of Jesus in, but that's, that's a discussion for for another (laughs) day. But, but with your point earlier, Zach, I think it's so, such a good point that, you know this this is what happens sometimes in a system where the pastor is very beloved and then you hear this accusation that they have sexually harassed someone and there's this idea well i didn't experience that from him so it can't be true just because you didn't have that experience doesn't mean it's not true hmm. so kind of when people again when people share these experiences with church being willing to talk about them rather than trying to dismiss them and say that didn't happen
1: yeah yeah that's really really fascinating yeah 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 thank you for bringing that up um yeah so on that on that topic is there any anything else you wanted to
0: mention on the topic of um people who conflate their experiences um i mean the main thing i guess i would would want to add to that and this is my counselor thing talking is i think again people who are trying to help someone who's experienced this religious trauma again well-meaning Want to convince someone that's not how God is, or that's not how church is, or come to my church, it, it will be different. <laughs> and and that might be true, but if someone is not wanting to hear that, respect that. Just respect that they might not be it. like for them that was how they experienced God, and so they need to they don't need to be convinced that God is not like that. Um, they may have a different thing that they need to hear in that healing process. So mm-hmm. so respect where people are with that again, just not because, because it's not your experience doesn't mean that's not their experience.
1: Hmm. Oh, and uh, last thought here, Uh, the, for people that like have been in these experiences of like, you know, church hurt or religious trauma or whatever, uh, what would you recommend that they do?
0: Great question. Um, I mean, as a counselor, I would, again, I might need to come back and talk about this Zach because there's <laughs> there's a lot to talk about the history of animosity between Christianity and mental health and and kind of you know the counseling world and the religious yeah. world. So, um, but I'm someone I feel like I bridge both worlds, and so I would hope that churches in general would really destigmatize health see- help seeking behaviors that that, that mm-hmm. people would be. Um, supportive of people going to counseling and having their own space to talk about that. I also, the way I have to own that Christianity and religious systems can be harmful, I have to own that, you know, there's a lot of great counselors in the world and there's a lot of counselors who don't understand religious trauma. And so if you are able to find someone who specializes in that, that would be, would be the most helpful. But In my research, that came up as a path to healing with a lot of these participants when they said going to counseling, having a space that validated this was traumatic, being able to um, have my own space to to name this stuff without having to defend myself or without being evangelized in the middle of it or without having to be convinced that my experience didn't happen. So I, I would hope that people would find help and healing in counseling, especially if you can find someone who really understands that. Um, there are some counselors who I think go to, like bias from a counseling perspective can happen all along the continuum. Mm-hmm. There's people who are anti-religious, there's people who are very highly religious and and wanting to impose religion and and bias on both of those ends of the continuum is an, unethical. So, um, but, but someone who can just provide you the space for your own experience, without coming in with their own agenda, hopefully could be helpful. But whatever it is, knowing that your voice is important in finding people who are safe to talk about it with.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would, I would highly agree with that. Um, not that my opinion matters that much in this conversation. But, of course, um, your opinion matters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're the expert here, not me. Um, but uh, yeah, no, that's um, that, that. That is a really good point. I mean, as far as religion goes, that's even more of a hot topic. So I could see that being a lot more difficult time for a lot of therapists to or counselors to have because yeah. you even have even more bias in that regard. And um, yeah. someone that's been through that church trauma or whatever that is a therapist might even not be a good therapist because they've been through that. But it also could be times where it could be good so yeah. yeah there's a lot that goes on with that yeah. so that's really That's something
0: I talk about in bringing the mental health perspective into our podcast is recognizing from a mental health perspective that when when a client discloses an experience like this some counselors might go well you need to get out of that system you need to leave and that's not what all clients want to do some clients want to do that or have already done that, but some clients, even though it's been a lot of hurt within the system, the system's important to them, and they, um, for whatever reason, are still attached to that system. Yeah. So so it the big thing with counseling is not having our own agenda about what the client needs to do, but really walking with the client and giving them a voice um, through the experience.
1: Hmm. Are you familiar with any, I mean, I know you do counseling yourself, but Mm -hmm. I mean, are you open to clients or is there any religious trauma experts that are, that have uh, openings for clients or whatever that they could check out?
0: Um, So I'm only licensed in North Carolina, but I do see, (laughs) but I provide teletherapy. So I do see clients all over um, North Carolina. Um, And, and unfortunately the way Unfortunately or fortunately there's reasons yeah. for this that that a lot of different counseling licensure boards are 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 state mandated but there are a few databases out there about finding um someone who specializes in religious trauma i'm happy for people to reach out to me and i can kind of contact my networks and see if there's anyone in the state where someone is. Um, I am limited to having people in, in the United States. I'm sure your audience (laughs) is broader than that, but um, I am limited to understanding that. But, but generally speaking, it's just entering some search terms around religious trauma, religious abuse, religious harm, um, spirituality, someone who specializes in that. Um, Mm. So, so those are, Um, But having a conversation before you start counseling, kind of let them know Mm. that this is my issue. Can you handle it? And Mm. hopefully a counselor would be ethical enough to recognize whether they can or not.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Really good. Really good advice there. Yeah. Thank you for that. Uh, A lot of the times that I've noticed that people struggle with like finding a therapist is, you know, one that's good one and how to do it. And like that can be just a, a burden in itself. Yes.
0: Yes, access to mental health in this country is um, something I could talk about a long time. (laughs) Some other issues around that, for sure. Um,
1: Yeah, it's getting better, though, that I've, you know, lots of employees are I think
0: I think the stigma around it is decreasing. I think that people are a lot more open to reaching out for help and open to things like how medication can be helpful. And, um, like, that's harm I've heard is churches who try to get people to not use medication, which can be life-saving for people, which can be so helpful. So, so I think that that stigma is decreasing, but there are certainly still some systems that would be opposed to that.
1: Yeah. Cool. Awesome. All right. Well, I really appreciate you coming on here. Um, Yeah. Everyone make sure to check out your podcast. Uh, Link will be in the description. Uh, Make sure you check out uh, Dr. Swindle's work here. And um, yeah. Any last thoughts before we close out here?
0: Yeah, I just, I appreciate the conversation, Zach. You know, I imagine, yeah, we have some different thoughts about things. And I imagine some people are going to be watching this and have some really different thoughts about things. And Uh we say in our podcast, how we, one of our taglines is we're not trying to make you think like us. We're just trying to make you think (laughs) in general. And so, so I just appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. I, from a religious trauma standpoint, would just ask people to recognize um, the power of the sacred and to to really try to not weaponize it, but to use it in a way that really represents um, the, what you say you believe in.
1: Hmm. Yeah, that's really deep. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Th- thanks again. This has yeah. been awesome. And I, I you. hope you have a great rest of your night.
0: Yeah, you too. Thanks, Zach.